Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Welcome to Space 3D. This episode is timely as we just celebrated the 60th anniversary of the launch of the United States' first weather satellite, Tyros-1, on April 1st, 1960. Today, co-hosts Tom Hill and Eleanor Rangers chat with engineer Tim Walsh, someone who has supported three decades of weather satellite development for NASA and NOAA. Tim is currently supporting the next generation of low-Earth orbiting weather satellites called the Joint Polar Satellite System, or JPSS. Satellites in the Joint Polar Satellite System constellation deliver key observations for the nation's forecasting of severe weather events, including hurricanes, tornadoes, and blizzards days in advance, and assessing environmental hazards such as droughts, forest fires, poor air quality, and harmful coastal waters. Prior to joining JPSS, Tim helped to develop, launch, and check out the first two satellites for the Geostationary Operational Environmental Satellites R-Series program, known as GOES-R, until October of 2018. In part one of our interview, we'll explore how the flagging automotive market in the late 1980s led Tim Walsh into his career working with weather satellites. We'll also learn how satellites, along with mathematical modeling, have greatly improved since Tyros 1. We'll also discuss how satellite technology is evolving and how data from these platforms have imaging applications beyond the weather. Well, welcome, everyone. This is Tom Hill, one of your hosts for Space 3D. It's a little-known fact, but one of the things discussed during the Kennedy speeches in the early 60s about space travel, everybody knows about the challenge to land someone on the moon, but there were two other things that were discussed at the time, and that was communication satellites and weather satellites. And probably those two technologies have had a bigger impact on our daily life things we do moment to moment, than landing on the moon did. So today we are going to talk to someone who's been working with weather satellites. Let's see, if I do the math quick, he's probably over half the time we've been doing weather satellites. <laughs> That's about right. Yes, Tom. <laughs> so Tim Walsh and I, we worked together in the early 2000s. We were working on a weather satellite called the Geostationary Operational Environmental Satellite together. Since then, I've gone one way, he's gone another. He stayed with weather satellites, and he's done worked on a number of different projects between the uh, NOAA, our, our weather agency, and NASA, the Space Development Agency. We've also got Eleanor here today, who's going to be chiming in as well. But uh, So welcome, Tim. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Tom. Thanks, Eleanor. Really looking forward to it. All right, great. So, Tim, how did you get started in weather satellites? Oh, my goodness. Um, I think it's really interesting. It's funny how life takes you. But I started out, uh, my undergraduate degree was in electrical engineering. And I I actually, in high school, worked in an automotive shop, a car a, a mechanic shop. And um, I figured I was going to be a car guy. And I worked in college. I had an internship with General Motors and worked on a 
Corvette, which is a really fun car to work on. And I thought I was going to be a car guy. Now, I graduated in 1987, which was not a particularly good time in the U.S. automotive industry. So <laughs> I, I, went, I went to the Mid-Atlantic. Life just took me to, to Maryland, and I, I got a job there. And I started working um, with, uh, you know, at the time, it was called Westinghouse, and now it's Northrop. But um, I've, I've worked on a number of different uh, uh, programs as, an, as a new graduate. And one of my rotations was down at NASA, and that's how I first got integrated with NASA. And so that was around... Uh, right around 1990, 91, and so that's how I got involved with the NASA programs. Cool. So now we probably need to do a little bit of background because people see weather satellite images all the time but may not know it. So what's uh, what are some of the, the distinct advantages that space gives weather satellites? That's a great question, Tom. There's two kinds of satellites that are really kind of most prevalent in the uh, weather satellite world. One of which that you and I are most familiar with as we work together on is the geostationary or geosynchronous weather satellites. They, they, serve, they sit on a ring that's at a, a zero degrees inclination or around the equator, um, about 22,500 miles or about 25, I'm sorry, 35, 36,000 kilometers out. And at that orbit, you basically orbit at one, one uh, rotation per day. So from the ground, you look stationary. And that's really critical. It's a great way to, to look at um, a weather that's developing wherever you place a satellite. In our case, the United States has two satellites, one over the East Coast and one over the West Coast. And basically, they can, they can see actually the weather from all the way from the coast of Africa all the way out to New Zealand. So it's a pretty, it's a great uh, wide expanse of information. But basically, since you're stationary, you can, as fast as you can image the Earth, um, the you can have what's called kind of like now casting. And as the satellites that you referred to, earlier, the GO satellites, the most recent ones are so high spatial quality and high spectral content that it's almost like a, watching HDTV from orbit. So you can see rapidly developing storms in near real time. You can see tornadic activity as it forms. It's pretty pretty wild stuff. So when you look at the Weather Channel or any other um, type of weather provision or weather commercial provider service like um, uh, AccuWeather or Weather Channel or anything like that, or go to your local National Weather Service website, you'll see data usually from the GO satellite. So that's the geostationary satellite. The other type of satellite that's, I think, probably not as visible, but arguably more important, is uh, the, the polar orbiting satellites. And they zip around the poles about uh, once every 100 minutes or so, 14 orbits a day, and they basically give you a global perspective. And the way I think of it is those satellites gather data and, and basically um, provide data to our most critical customer, the National Weather Service, which is they do um, numerical weather prediction, which provides you, the, you know, the consumer and the taxpayer, like a, a forecast. So I've, I've got a question, you know, coming from a very non-technical standpoint, but when did we start sort of getting these satellites up in space? And I guess ultimately my question is, you know, I remember as a kid, weather prediction was pretty bad. <laughs> and now I think that most of the predictions are pretty spot on. So I'm wondering how much of that was just because we have these satellites now, but also what about the contribution of these models that they talk about all the time in the Weather Channel? You know, the, there's the European model and then there's the American model and which one predicts better, particularly they, I know they do that with hurricanes, but I, I'd really like to understand 
you know, a little bit about how these have really improved our our predict, prediction of, of the weather. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's as an engineer, I always think of you know, systems as a kind of a big black box with inputs going in and, and data coming out or outputs coming out. And, and the way I look at models, you know, my focus is actually building satellites and instruments that go on the satellites. And we we provide data that basically, you know, international partners, NASA, NOAA, DOD, a bunch of different um, instruments on orbit basically provide data that go into this big black box called a, a weather model, a numerical weather prediction model. And the U.S. has a model. The Europeans have a model. DOD has a model. There's a number of different what's called ensemble, ensembles of models that, that basically a weather forecaster or a meteorologist would use to kind of predict the storm movements. But the interesting thing to me is basically the more data we can provide that's of high quality, um, both the U.S. models and the European models and every other model will get better. And, of course, the good news is there's a lot of international collaboration and civil DOD collaboration. So I think we all benefit, which is a positive. So I do think of, that there's been a lot of healthy competition between the U.S. and the, and the European models. I think um, every, every hurricane season, there's always seems to be a little bit of a, a discussion in the news about, um, you know, are the U.S. models as good or if, are they better? And I think what it comes down to, what, and again, I, I say this as an engineer, not a meteorologist. I think that there's certain types of weather phenomena that some models generally tend to be better than the others. Um, and so whether it's tornadic activity or large hurricane systems or synoptic systems or larger systems, in other words. But I do think the good news is, is I, I can tell that the newest leadership over at NASA and NOAA are really focused at trying to get our models to be better. And, that, and to me, that's a real positive because we're, as Tom knows well, we're launching all these really cool spacecraft with amazing new sensors and you really want to kind of exploit the data that you're getting down. And I think we're just, we're really starting to do that. And I think you'll see the weather data get better. But to, interestingly, you, you mentioned how long you know, satellites have been in orbit. And Tom mentioned President Kennedy earlier. But we, I think we're about to celebrate the 60th anniversary of the first LEO true weather satellite, Tyros-1, which was um, launched in like April 1st of 1960. And... Um, before that, there was a satellite called Vanguard, and of course, before that, Explorer that um, that was launched. But Tyros was the first true, you know, focused on the weather satellite that, that was that was launched, and it was launched um, uh, in not necessarily a polar orbit, but it was basically the first start. Um, NASA had launched that one, and then NOAA came on a couple hundred, a couple decades later, or really a decade later, and and basically over the years took over the program and basically now they're flying a number of satellites in the in the polar orbit but it's kind of fun to see how the the system has evolved over the years basically the polar orbits have started have, have been continuously monitored since 1960 and then the geostationary orbits have been pretty much uh continuously monitored since 1970 so oh interesting yeah and i almost wonder if it's those the geosynchronous ones may have really I think dramatically improved a lot of that, a lot of the prediction. Agreed. I think particularly, you know, especially in the United States and the, uh, in the Midwest where you'll see, you know, really severe weather come up suddenly. Um, you could think of as the LEO spacecraft or the, the low earth orbiters providing that they're setting the initial conditions in these models that help predict, but then you want to give, so that's where the warnings and the watches come from. And then you'll see, the uh, geostationary satellites will give you kind of the real-time information as to what's going on, where the fronts are coming from, how severe they are. 
And even the most recent satellites not only take images, but they also have these, they're measuring um, lightning mappers. They have these lightning mappers on board that measure lightning uh, strikes and other things, lightning cloud to cloud and cloud to ground, that um, I guess the weather, the meteorologists are finding out that by monitoring those um, those events, those lightning events, they can basically predict when severe weather will, will um, I guess, a sudden upsurge of, of severe weather. So there's a lot of interesting things that we're just starting to scratch the surface on. Yeah. I think another major factor is the computing power as well that's grown hand in hand to be able to build these models and capture all the, all the nuances. Yes, Tom. I, I think there's a, a number of things, whether as we increase the um, – mostly the spectral content of these instruments and also the data rates that are coming down. And there's so much rich weather uh, content that the cool thing about today's world and the computing environments is that, yeah, you could develop your own supercomputing cluster or you could, um, there's basically a lot of uh, a technology or a lot of improved processing that's enabled by the cloud, by cloud um, uh, processing. And so I know that um, NASA NOAA are, are looking at uh, ways of improving um both uh, data processing in the cloud and also data access through the cloud. Two weeks ago, there was American Meteorological Society had its 100th anniversary annual meeting, and the NOAA um, administrator, Neil Jacobs, talked about his major focus is to provide kind of uh, a, a lot, you know, increased access to as many people as possible to get to weather data, but also to provide um, you know, high computing facilities. Um, I think that's a major focus on, on the NOAA side. Uh, or how does that feed feed into? I mean, obviously, the other the other immediate group that comes to mind that really relies on the weather data are the airlines. And I'm just curious about where do they get their weather information directly from NOAA, or how is it adapted? You know, because I'm just thinking too, like a lot of what they're concerned about are going to be downdrafts and local phenomenon that are going to affect their ability to fly. But I'm just curious about that too. Yeah, no, that's that's a question I get a lot. But, I mean, um, one thing that's interesting is since 1960, since we've been getting weather data from on orbit, um, it's really hard if you're a commercial provider of data to uh, the, the business plan to build your own spacecraft and instruments and launch it into orbit um, was really difficult in the early days. And so the U.S. government, as did other governments in DOD, got together and said, okay, well, we'll invest um, – it will provide this data for free. I mean, that's the whole, that's really paid for by the taxpayer, of course. And so I think what's happened over the years is um, this data comes through, it goes to the National Weather Service, and they combine it with other data, whether it's in situ measurements on the ground and or radar, radar measurements, which people see a lot of during severe storms. And that information, in situ weather, I'm sorry, radar and on orbit provides uh, that data is often used by third-party commercial providers for, you know, whether it's data enrichment or they'll, they'll provide different products uniquely suited, suited to certain customers, like oil platforms, air, you know, aircraft and or airlines and other things like that. So there's, it's kind of interesting. There's a, there's over the years we've developed a kind of a, a an available service that's been provided for free, and then. Um, you know, it's nice to see that these other companies can take it and, and develop it and actually, you know, use it commercially. It'll be interesting over the next couple of years as the as the as access to space has become more accessible or cheaper, and um, satellites have become smaller. You know, technology has improved, and, and data satellites can take care of themselves a little bit easier than they have in the past. And so, 
I think it'll be interesting as the commercial world adapts whether they can actually become the the roots of, or the the source of the data, and that will be um, a real positive, I think, for both the commercial and the, and the government side. All right, and turn it back to Tom. Ah, sorry, I had my uh, microphone on mute there while I was chewing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so one of the things that that people talk about is the different uh, wavelengths that our weather satellites can look at. What's what do each one of those bring to it? Uh, well, there's a, there's a lot of different wavelengths, of course, that uh, people are what they what most people associate with is the visible wavelengths, of course, right? And I think that's the first the first satellites were focused on on the visible wavelengths. I think the Tyro spacecraft. I remember looking at the early images, and of course, you could only see the Earth during daylight. Um, but of course, especially on the on both the geo and the Leo side, or geostationary and low Earth orbiting sides. We, we do see the Earth uh, at all times of day and night, uh, all sun angles. And so we also, a, couple, a number of years ago, they instituted infrared and near-infrared wavelengths where um, not only can they see clouds at night and cloud uh, weather phenomena at night, but by using different wavelengths, they, you know, Tom, and this is where I, I have to admit, this is not an area of uh, intense knowledge, but, but I do know that different wavelengths associate with different types of sometimes precipitation, whether it's uh, rain, snow, uh, fog, uh, sometimes volcanic activity and volcanic ash, various um, various aerosols and other things. So the more spectral content you have, the more access to different um, different items in the atmosphere, whether it's precipitation or aerosols or other things, dust. Um, so I think as we've gotten more sophisticated on orbit, certainly people have found ways to exploit it better on the ground. Give you an example is like a couple of years ago, um, there were the significant fires that people remember out on the west coast, and and uh, I mean it was a really interesting kind of melding of the go the go satellites and the JPSS satellites, where um, the go satellites see the Earth, they're constantly staring on the at the western hemisphere, so they would oftentimes see the the fires faster than people would even call them in for four you know nine one one, and so in the middle of um, I guess there was some fires I remember in Napa Valley and areas, but we, I remember seeing the hot spots immediately in the infrared. And then um, a couple various orbits later, you'd see the the LEO or JPSS satellites come up and look at the imagery both in the infrared, or look at the ground both in the infrared and the visible, and you'd see actually the perimeter of the fire because the, the, the uh, resolution is down to about 250 meters. So. It was really impressive to see how the two satellites, two types of satellites, could work together to to help emergency responders and stuff like that. And then, every once in a while, you'll hear other things like that people don't often associate with weather, like volcanic activity. Uh, obviously, you have to tell airlines how to vector around uh, ash clouds and such because that would really be a bad day for your air, aircraft if you flew through an ash cloud. So. I think that's been another area where I think people have just started to really exploit what we have on orbit. Yeah, from what I understand, one of the earliest cases of that was in the early satellites, they couldn't tell the difference between a cloud and snow. That's very true, Tom. And so some of these discriminating wavelengths, you can actually, um, they'll do some interesting uh, processing between using multiple wavelengths to figure out, okay, that's a real signature for snow or for fog or for you know, clouds, as you say. So, and even certain clouds, you know, some clouds are more rich with um, with ice particles versus uh, 
uh, true, not, you know, non-frozen um, water. So you'll see differences there as well. Right. And, and if you view them across all those spectra, you can build a much richer picture of what's going on. Absolutely. And again, I think of it, Tom, as, as setting the initial conditions and, and setting the models uh, on their way to predicting what the weather will be in the future. And that's where, you know, certainly when you if you do this again with somebody else who's staring at the earth, a true meteorologist, you'll get a better sense there. But um, I think what we've heard is particularly when I was there at the AMS conference two weeks ago is people are really excited about getting this new data because the models have become um, the predictions, the, the forecasts, the three- and five-day forecasts will become much more accurate. Although, Eleanor, yeah. you, you mentioned earlier that, um, you'd, you, I guess anecdotally, that over the, over the years the forecasts have gotten better. This, they truly have. And I remember seeing a, a graph um, presented a couple weeks ago that showed, again, t- over, the t- over the years, whether it was from 1960 to today, or I don't think it was that far back, but it was a number of years ago, probably the 90s to today, and you could see as new instruments were put into orbit, as new satellites were put in different um, types of orbit or given we had more coverage, more temporal coverage or time update coverage, you could see certain, not step functions, but certain times where you could see specific improvements that really helped with weather prediction. Yeah. What was their uh, criteria? Well, um, I think it was basically, you know, it's, there was a couple different criteria that I remember being presented. One was, you know, hurricane track, um, whether, you know, the, can you can you predict the proper hurricane track three to five days out? Because you know, as you know, uh, if you're if you're um, evacuating a number of miles of coastline, you want to get that that location proper. You know, a couple of days ahead of time. So the, things like that. There were other things. Um, oh gosh, Tom, I, I'll have to go back and. But there was specific criteria that was defining whether it was how accurate it was, and um, I'll have to go back and look and see what that was. Oh, but what I do remember. Was a hurricane track. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's a good one. I remember at one of the conferences that we had downtown. Right. It was soon after I'd been working, been working at uh, at NOAA. There, they were talking about uh, weather predictions in the palm of your hand, and I couldn't even picture what they were talking about at the moment because we had these blocky cell phone things, you know, that just had just had uh, you know LED readouts for the digits that you dialed and all that. I. The, the idea of a smartphone had, phone hadn't occurred to me yet, but they had to somebody else. It's true. You know, and Eleanor, I'll tell you one thing that's funny about Tom is that I do remember back in when we were working together a number of years ago, I think he was, Tom, you were the first guy I knew that had a Palm Pilot that had a GPS receiver. <laughs> and, and this was, and I do remember specifically walking out of the building with Tom and Tom holding the, the uh, Palm Pilot up to the sky trying to get a, a signal. But, yeah, it, when you think about today, all that we utilize GPS signals for, but um, that's just an example. I do think that um, as we migrate signal processing, or not signal processing, but weather data processing into the cloud uh, and provide probably uh, or better access to that data, um, there are other things like, Tom, you know well, command and control of satellites is something that I don't necessarily believe I'll ever have in the palm of my hand, but um, – but we can do a lot of things um, in a very secure way um, today, whether it's banking from your home PC or other things. So you never know. I'm never going to say never. But um, I do think that you will be getting products, maybe not processing in the palm of your hand, but products in real time you do today. That's pretty phenomenal stuff. And and uh, I think it's only going to improve from here. You know, Just think about where we were just five, ten years ago. Yeah, my default in that sort of thing is to say, 
I'm not sure how that would happen. Not That's impossible. Exactly. That's a good way to put it. We hope this was an informative episode. We'll continue our conversation with Tim Walsh in our next podcast. For Tom Hill and Emily Carney, this is Eleanor Rangers for Space 3D.